This is At Your Leisure from Weekend Edition. I'm Allison Stewart. Scott Simon is away. Coming up, we talk with John Bogle, founder and former CEO of the Vanguard Group, whose new book, Enough, puts the new economic world order in perspective. We visit Harlem's most recent incarnation of redevelopment. Plus, we remember Studs Terkel with Scott Simon. But first... As you exit the subway at 125th Street and Lenox Avenue in the heart of Harlem, a block to the north is Sylvia's, serving soul food for 40 years. A block to the south is the Lenox Lounge, a jazz hotspot since the 1930s. And directly across the street is Starbucks and Staples. There's an old navy near the legendary Apollo Theater where James Brown filled the house. The changes in this iconic African-American community have been both positive and painful and persistent. That house is drop dead gorgeous. They paid uh, $1.5 million for the privilege of putting another $700,000 into it. For a successful real estate agent, Harlem gentrification is about business. It's not cultural. It's an economic transformation of a neighborhood from one economic class to another. And clearly that's been happening in Harlem. When I say the word gentrification, what comes to mind for you? Homelessness comes to me. So a very sad situation comes to mind. That's a 72-year-old longtime resident. A newer arrival, an artist, sees a positive side of the renewed interest in uptown Manhattan. I love the fact that um, it has been restored to its former beauty. I don't mind most of the development. The president of an organization that helps create affordable housing is practical in her assessment of the changes. Sometimes we say we're victims of our own success in rebuilding the community. But um, it's a much better option to be concerned with gentrification than to be concerned with high crime and blight. Drugs, crime, poverty, a powerful trio that decimated Harlem in the 70s. Once stately brownstones became abandoned, bombed out, graffiti-ridden dens of illegal activity. Locals who couldn't afford to or didn't want to leave lived in an area with few services and an uneasy relationship with the police. In the 1980s, New York City took ownership of many of the homes in ruin and offered good deals to those willing to fix them up. The residential real estate market took off in the 90s. This is the master bedroom. It was a master bedroom and a mistress bedroom. While showing us a four-floor Victorian brownstone with the original ceiling molding, pocket doors, and parquet floors, it was clear realtor Willie Suggs loves Harlem. She also loves explaining how much money is being spent on newly restored townhouses full of high-end amenities. Some admire her. Others think she is part of the problem. Suggs sees nothing wrong with the way Harlem is evolving economically. Once you've got the people in the neighborhood, then the businesses, thank you God, they would come. We wouldn't have had a Starbucks here 10 years ago. Who's going to pay $2.5 for a cup of coffee? Nobody made enough money to pay $2.5 for a cup of coffee. So in your mind, seeing a Starbucks in the corner of 125th Street, that's a sign of progress. Oh, of course. Because, I, mean, I don't think I should have to get on a subway and go to Macy's to buy my niece a present. Now I just have to take my tushy down 125th Street. We have choices of services. Do you understand how people who lived here before the real estate became so valuable, mm. 
would feel disgruntled that now there are services here, now there are cops, and now mm -hmm. there are nice places mm -hmm. to eat when they were here, when slugging it through, when the city wasn't caring about them and people couldn't make money mm -hmm. off of their blocks. I understand, but, but they also understand. When I moved up here in 85, this was January, and I was out there sweeping my sidewalk, one of my neighbors said, why are you sweeping? And this is an older black person who'd been here for 30-some years. And I said, well, I'm sweeping because it's dirty? He said, well, it's just going to get dirty again. What is that about? I understand that people believed that no matter what they did, it was not going to change. So they stopped complaining. I was told this by several of them. And it took new people coming in, not, I'm not talking white people, but new people, said, no, I'm not putting up with this crap. That was Harlem, B.C., before Clinton. In 2001, when the former president chose to make his office on 125th Street, Harlem's commercial appeal was sealed, according to Suggs. High-end destination restaurants followed. What will happen to the most recent development as the result of the Wall Street meltdown remains to be seen. However, just three weeks ago, the city council gave the go-ahead for commercial rezoning in East Harlem. Columbia University is beginning to develop a 17-acre swath of West Harlem, Local activists worry that the uniqueness and history of Harlem will be paved over. Nellie Hester Bailey, executive director of the Harlem Tenants Council, wants respect for Harlem's history and its residents. Harlem has the right to remain as the historic African-American community and that it wasn't just a matter of blacks coming to Harlem, but it was a matter of public policy predicated on race and class that created the largest concentration of people of African descent in one location in the city of New York. And what came out of that was not pity, but a rebirth. And as they said at the time of the Harlem Renaissance, the new Negro, and that is worth fighting for as part of community, and that is the community of historic Harlem. During the 1920s, the Harlem Renaissance was a time of great productivity, creativity, and joy in African-American history. Imagine hearing Ella Fitzgerald sing at the Apollo Theater, or attending a poetry reading of Langston Hughes right in your own neighborhood, or having a picnic after church in one of Harlem's lush parks. It was this life that current Harlem resident Victoria Haberman dreamed of as a child in Germany. When I was 10 years old, I read a book about New York, and I said, I'm going to live in Harlem all my life. I love Harlem. That's it. And I'm living in Harlem. I'm an uptown girl. <laughs> and everybody was, oh, you want to go to Harlem? You're going to... I said, I love it. Everybody, it's, I felt better than anywhere in the city. Now 66, she has been priced out of her rental apartment. So she is looking to buy after 40 years. Any way that he would go down? I have to make, uh, well, yeah, there's always a way there's you can go way, down. Right? There's always a way. Everybody. We've already saved you $9,000. You don't have to pay the closing costs. So that the apartment has a roof deck and all the latest stainless steel kitchen appliances. But that isn't really why Victoria wants to stay here. What have you enjoyed about living in Harlem? The peace, a lot of peace and quiet. It's not so congested as downtown. I can ride my bike. Mm -hmm. But it's good. I, I will... Keep on looking a little bit. Maybe I can find something 
less expensive. Low rent is one of the things that keeps 72-year-old Dolores Early fighting for her home, even though there are problems. When we visited, her husband opened a hall window and revealed a smelly mass of black water and refuse feet from their front door. Uh, this is a condition that has been here for years, but recently they decided not to clean it. I've been complaining about it for over a year. Mrs. Early, whose apartment is rent stabilized, believes her landlord wants her out. Some of the apartments here, they're getting $1,500. Some of them more than that. This lady right here, she was paying $1,015 for four rooms. I pay uh, $474.02. Low-income housing is a top priority for community leaders who want to embrace the economic growth but protect the people. Hi, I'm Lucille McEwen. I'm president of Harlem Congregations for Community Improvement. I'm a native Harlemite who's been working in my community for many years. Um, I was going to take you around to Dinkins Gardens, which is one of our buildings that uh, we recently completed. Named for New York City's first African-American mayor, David Dinkins, the residence has 85 units for employed low-income people and late teens who have aged out of foster care. Ms. McEwen is proud of some of the building's environmentally friendly features on its roof, as well as the view. You might want to walk over here and take your last look at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> she continued to describe the neighborhood. Um, there was actually a major drug supermarket on this location that had multi-levels. And when we first built that building, it took many months to uh, get it rented because the homeless were even not interested in moving into this community. But of now, of course, you know that we have, you know, million-dollar co-ops nearby. So the community has changed. The tension between the new and old is real. For example, over the summer, a local tradition of African drumming in a park led to noise complaints to police from new condominium owners. These kinds of challenges are the subject of an art show uptown, Evolution, the Changing Face of Harlem. Misha McGowan is the curator. One of the questions that we sought to answer was, what does Harlem mean to me? And the answers were so varied, and there's so many changes happening in Harlem right now. And a lot of the artists who are in our organization are also a part of the change. Her contribution is a painting of an anonymous tuxedo-clad African-American composer seated at a piano. It brings up perhaps the best reason one could decide to invest in Harlem. Living here, I feel a strong connection and as an artist with the artist of the Harlem Renaissance. And I actually feel like we have a, another Harlem Renaissance right now, but maybe we don't know it yet. So my piece just speaks to that and the fact that that spirit remains and that on some level is why we all want to be here. John Bogle has fans. They're called Bogleheads. Online, they discussed his every move and comment about the United States financial system. And it's understandable. Mr. Bogle is the founder and former CEO of the Vanguard Group, the trillion-dollar mutual fund, one of the largest in the world. 
Now, his new book isn't so much about investment advice as it is a philosophical look at how much wealth, fame, and power one person really needs and why those running our financial system are dangerously addicted to accumulating more and more and more. The book is called Enough, The True Measure of Money, Business, and Life. John Bogle joins us from member station WHYY in Philadelphia. Mr. Bogle, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, Great to be with you, Allison. Now, I almost hesitated in mentioning how much money Vanguard holds, because after reading your book, you devote a whole chapter to explaining how Americans rely too much on counting things like money to determine success. Tell us the pitfalls of constantly counting. There's a sign in Einstein's office that that I describe in the book that says, there are some things that count that can't be counted, and some things that can be counted that don't count. And that really summarizes up. We've got this counting society, and we rely on numbers to give us uh, facts that are really not facts. Uh, If someone's corporation, for example, says their earnings were $1.32 per share, the amount of financial engineering that's gone into that number is usually rather breathtaking. Uh, It's an engineered number, and the idea that you think you know something when you see a number is just greatly overdone. Uh, We think we can count everything that's important, uh, and we can't do that. You can't measure character. You can't measure integrity. You can't measure moral conduct. You can't measure love, uh, the things that are really important in our lives and in our society. You mentioned that a lot of your book is about character, and right now good character is not something that the average taxpayer necessarily would attribute to some people's performance who got us into this financial mess. Was there some moment, some legislation, some action that you think helped lead some financial leaders to forego good character? Well, I'd I'd take a half a step back, I think, Allison, if I may, and just say this is not just a financial problem, a problem of the financial sector of our economy. This is really an economy-wide problem, uh, a societal problem, uh, where there's too much greed everywhere. uh, But admittedly, the worst part of that greed is certainly in the financial side of the society because the financial side is playing games with paper, uh, and uh, you know things with numbers on them, rather than manufacturing things that mean something, like um, you know jet airplanes, for example. And uh, so most speculation takes place in the financial side. So that's the worst manifestation and the easiest place by far to uh, indulge your own greediness. We're speaking with John Bogle. His new book is Enough, The True Measure of Money, Business, and Life. I'm wondering if you think that October 2008 is a good long-term buying opportunity. None of us really know that because we don't know what's ahead for the economy, which is important here. However, the stock market itself is a different uh, kettle of fish, one might say, and that is it's anticipating, obviously, a very severe recession, and it's down something like 40%. And uh, I would say no plunging, no diving into the stock market, but uh, starting an investment program today, if I was a young person, I would put it all into stocks and invest monthly over the rest of my life, and I will do very well. I'm absolutely confident of that. But I do want to give one rule that I think is very important, and that is as you near retirement, more and more bonds, less and less stocks, uh, and uh, your bond allocation should be approximately equal to your age. Rough rule of thumb. Hmm. So if you're 60, 60% bonds, and if you retire at 65, you'll be 65% bonds. And that kind of a program would have served you very well in a difficult year like this. As I mentioned in the intro, this book 
is fairly philosophical. You might get some financial advice out of some of your your thoughts about the way we spend money and our relationship with money. Why did you choose to write this kind of book at this time in your life? Well, I started to look at what was going on in our financial system. And to be honest, Allison, I got outraged. I did some research and found out the financial system cost $600 billion a year. And that means whatever the markets deliver, we investors get $600 billion less because we pay it to this institution or this series of institutions, mutual fund managers, hedge fund managers, stockbrokers, investment bankers that we call loosely Wall Street. And that means we lose to the market by you know over a half a trillion dollars year after year after year. And investors have to know about that because it speaks to a real flaw in our system where the financial system is consuming an excessive share of, of the economy's uh, resources compared to things like manufacturing or healthcare or technology. But it turns out the financial sector subtracts value from society. John Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Group, thanks again for your time. Good to be with you, Allison, always. Coming up, we buckle down with Nixon, musically. But first, polls, polls, polls. Who's up? Who's down? Who cares? We wanted to find out just how this ubiquitous staple of political coverage came to be and who figured out the method behind the polling madness. And who would be the guy who would know the answer to something like that? Our math guy, Keith Devlin, of course. He joins us from Stanford University Studios in California. Hi, Keith. Hi, Alison. Nice to be with you. Thanks for joining us. So tell me, when did the mathematics of polling first come to light? You know, it's actually much more recent than people think. Right up to the middle of the 17th century, any mathematician that you approached would have said that it's impossible to predict the future. You can apply numbers and you can count things in the world we live in and in the past, but you simply can't use mathematics to predict the future. That all changed in the 17th century when Pierre de Fermat, a very famous mathematician, answered actually a rather curious little problem called the problem of the unfinished game, which was a problem about how you divide the pot when a gambling game has to be abandoned before it's finished. Oh, something important. (laughs) You'd have thought that 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 had no application whatsoever, but that actually opened a floodgate of, of essentially the modern society that we live in because by solving that one problem, Fermat showed that you actually can apply mathematics to predict the future. And in fact, within 25 or 30 years of that, of that problem being solved, you have all of the trappings of modern society with, with, with sort of risk management, futures prediction, insurance, uh, annuities. Everything we now take for granted came on the, on the heels and literally on the heels of that one mathematical result in the 17th century. And one of the particular results that was obtained in that rush of, of new mathematics was by a Swiss mathematician called Jacob Bernoulli, And he showed that if you can take a random sample from a population and then providing there are enough people in that sample, what information you get from that sample will actually be representative of the whole. And in fact, you only need to look at maybe a thousand people providing they're chosen randomly from the population. Uh, A thousand people can get you a pretty good prediction of what might happen in somewhere like Florida or Ohio in an election. But the key word you used was random. Oh, you're absolutely right. That is really key. And in fact, in 1948, when pretty well all the major polls, including Gallup, predicted that Thomas Dewey was going to defeat Harry S. Truman in the presidential election. In fact, they predicted it was going to be a landslide. As we all know, that didn't happen. 
What happened, as you correctly noted, Alison, was that they didn't pick a sufficiently random sample. In fact, what they did in that case was use the telephone, this, this new device that was available to everyone, or they thought everyone, for reaching people. They phoned people and asked them who they were going to vote for. But back then, only the more wealthy people owned telephones. The wealthy people uh, were more right-wing leaning. Uh, they were favouring Dewey. And so the sample wasn't at all random. In fact, it was a sample predominantly of Dewey supporters. Keith Devlin, math guy, I need you to explain these three words to me. Margin of error. <laughs> yes, well, predicting the future, this thing that goes back to the 17th century, we don't mean we can say what will happen tomorrow. What we do is we attach numerical probabilities or likelihoods to what will happen tomorrow. And when we do that, we have to state what the margin of error is because this is probabilistic prediction. So when you carry out a poll, you have to use statistical techniques to estimate how likely you are to be wrong. That figure of asking 1,000 people being reliable, providing you choose them correctly in a random way, that will give you uh, typically what's known as a 3% margin of error. What that means is that if you kept on polling in that way, then 95% of the time, the answer you get will be within 3% of the correct answer. So you've got to realise there are two percentages there. The answer you get will be within 3% of the true answer 95% of the time. That other 5% of the time, the answer you get will be outside that margin of error. So even the margin of error itself <laughs> is not an absolute figure. Why is it a 1,000 people you need to speak to to be able to reach some sort of truth? It turns out that if you're happy with a 3% margin of error 95% of the time, then a well-selected, randomly selected group of a 1,000 does turn out to be predictive. Uh, if you want a more accurate result, if you want a 1% margin of error, you can get it, but then you've got to interview 10,000 people. So typically these days the pollsters settle on around a 1,000 because experience has taught them that that gives us fairly reliable results most of the time. Keith Devlin, Stanford University math professor and author of the recently published The Unfinished Game. Thanks so much, Keith. My pleasure, Alison. Coming up, writing other people's love songs. But first... Studs Terkel died yesterday in his beloved Chicago at the age of 96. For decades and decades, the Pulitzer Prize-winning oral historian traveled the country interviewing ordinary people, allowing them to tell their stories to a larger world. Back in 1995, he shared one of his interviewing techniques with his friend, Scott Simon, forgetting to hit the record button on the tape machine. These are the not celebrated people, not authors or musicians. This is, say, someone in a housing project. And I forgot to press the button. She said, you didn't press that. And I said, oh, thank you. At that moment, she feels not only my equal, my superior. See, at that moment, I'm not this guy with a mic from Mount Olympus coming down to Earth to do it, but this goofball <laughs> with, the, with, the, with this machine. And she helps me. Some people accuse me of deliberately goofing it up so I could make that other person feel better. That's not so. I'm just inept. It's simple as that. Weekend Edition Scott Simon joins us now from member station KUT in Austin, Texas. And Scott, I'm, I'm sorry for the loss of your good friend. He was a, a true original. Can you tell us what made Studs unique? 
Well, uh, you know, as you suggested, he, he perfected, if, if not outright invented, uh, oral history as a form, beginning with uh, his book Division Street America in the mid-60s, which I, I read as a kid. I, I guess the good war, which won the Pulitzer in 1985, is still the best known. And, you know, he used the technique in Division Street that just sounds so deceptively simple to tell the life stories of people who lived along uh, a single street that ran the breadth of Chicago from east to west. If I might speak as a Chicagoan, he made our our city sing. You know, he, he took the stories of, of the men and women who, who ride the red line from north to south um, and work the overnight shift, and he really turned them into, into the music of living. And uh, though Chicago was obviously his base, he, he used the city just as much as, as Algren or James T. Farrell or, or Richard Wright uh, or Saul Bellow to show places all over the world that there were stories hidden in the lives of people there that were, that were treasures to be excavated, and, and they glittered um, as literature. Why do you believe he was good at what he did? I, you know, I, I was laughing so much at, uh, at that clip that you played because it, it absolutely genuine. It's not as if Studs was some great technological wizard who had to feign <laughs> ineptitude. <laughs> he, di- he, didn't, he didn't have a driver's license, uh, as I don't, and I'm prepared to say that a world, the world has been a safer place because neither of us had a driver's license. But he, 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 he put himself in a position where, because people had to help him out, it changed the whole identity of the interview. Uh, suddenly he had to call on their better nature. And it made them more confident in an interview. You know, rather than be deferential or or defensive, he was someone that they were trying uh, to help out. And you can hear that confidence in the interviews he did because people are expressing themselves from a position of confidence. And it's what made a lot of his interviews not just different but extraordinary. Scott, are there any special stud stories you can share with us? Yeah, there are about a hundred I can't. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm here at the Texas Book Festival, and people have been asking me stud stories, and uh, they all have punchlines I can't repeat. <laughs> I just, can't, just can't repeat. He was, he was famously and creatively profane. But I do recall a number of years ago, we were in a, uh, a hotel bar. He was having his scotch, and there were a couple of people who came over to him. He was very identifiable, and they essentially wanted to tell him his life story. He was the repository of life stories of the last resort. And there was a woman, I, I, she seemed to have some, some problem of, I forget what it was, but let's just say that she thought that she'd had sex with space aliens. And I said to him something like, well, you could, you could never interview her. And he said, but you know, that's not true. Because in another dimension of her life, there might be a very compelling story going on. In fact, I'd be interested what was going on in her life that makes her think that she's had sex with space aliens. And he said, you know, you know, Pally, lots of people say you must have to you must have to go through like hundreds, you know, ha ha ha, hundreds of interviews <laughs> to get the two or three that work. And he said, no, you don't, you don't. You can make almost anyone work as an interview. It works. You just have to talk to them enough. You just have to just have to give them the chance. Everybody's got their story. Just let them sing. Pally, let him sing. That's good for all of us to remember, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Scott Simon, thanks for checking in. And again, we're sorry for your loss. Thank you, Allison. We're going to go out now with Studs Terkel reading the Carl Sandburg poem, Chicago. Chicago. Hog butcher for the world, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and the nation's freight handler, stormy, husky, brawling, city of the big shoulders. They tell me you are wicked, and I believe them. 
for I've seen your painted women under the gas lamps luring the farm boys. And they tell me you are crooked, and I answer, yes, it's true. I've seen the gunman kill and go free and kill again. And they tell me you are brutal, my reply is, on the faces of women and children I have seen the marks of wanton hunger. And having answered so, I turn once more to those who sneer at this, my city, and I give them back the sneer and say to them, Come and show me another city with lifted head, singing so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning, flinging magnetic curses amid the toil of piling job on job. Here is a tall, bold slugger set vivid against the little soft cities, fierce as a dog with tongue lapping for action, cunning as a savage pitted against the wilderness, Bareheaded, shoveling, wrecking, planning, building, breaking, rebuilding. Under the smoke, dust all over his mouth, laughing with white teeth. Under the terrible burden of destiny, laughing as a young man laughs. Laughing even as an ignorant fighter laughs who has never lost a battle. Bragging and laughing that under his wrist is the pulse under his ribs, the heart of the people, laughing. Laughing the stormy, husky, brawling laughter of youth, half-naked, sweating, proud to be hog-butcher, tool-maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads, and freight-handler to the nation. Studs Turkle reading Carl Sandburg, Chicago. Mr. Turkle died yesterday in Chicago. He was 96. Paul McCartney once sang, Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. What's wrong with that? Nothing, really. And truly, not all love songs are silly. Take the ones written by 31-year-old performer-composer Corey Dargle. His are heartbreaking and clever and catchy, and very specific. Dargle was commissioned to write 13 personal songs for couples of all configurations, husbands and wives, siblings, friends. For example, this track from Phil to his wife, Catherine. There was about a one in 1,500 chance that you and I would meet at Shakespeare in the park to wine and dine perchance to song and 12 others are on Corey Dargle's new CD, Other People's Love Songs from New Amsterdam Records. And he joins us from our New York studios, along with one couple for whom he wrote songs, Kristen Marting and Carl Skutch. Corey, hi. Hi. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Carl. Hi. And we also have another couple joining us from member station WBEZ in Chicago, CJ Mitchell and Karen Christopher. CJ and Karen, hi. Hello. So, Corey, I'm going to start with you. Are you a romantic at heart? I am a romantic at heart, but I think I'm also sort of ashamed of that. <laughs> Why are you ashamed of being a romantic? I think it's just something, there's something about it that feels like it's too easy. It's like the flip side of being a cynic. Every single note you play in the concert hall sounds just like a miracle to me. Everything is sweet and precious and 
I think sometimes the things that are most beautiful to me are the things that we know are going to pass away, the things that we know aren't going to last. And so enjoying those things and really investing and enjoying them while, while we can is something that I've, I enjoy. But halfway across Wyoming, I can't tell if we're coming or going. I wondered how you went about crafting your songs. They weren't sort of syrupy and, and silly love songs. Well, I tried to find the things about love that are a little bit quirky. I didn't want to treat love and intimacy as sort of profound and paralyzing emotions. So I looked for kind of ordinary things that make us fall in love with each other. Remember the first movie we ever saw? It was Valley of the Dolls. And the way you stroked my arm so sweetly. Now, did you sit down and actually interview each couple? I did. I have boilerplate questions for each couple, which are things like, how did you meet? What's the most exciting thing you've done together? And those questions then opened up the door for the subjects to lead me in whatever direction they wanted to go. Well, let's talk about two of your subjects. We've got CJ and Karen joining us from Chicago. Now, Karen, what the heck do seagulls have to do with your relationship? (laughs) Instead of answering a lot of Corey's questions... I just told a few stories, and one of them was that CJ and I, we took a lot of road trips together when we first met. We took one in particular toward Land's End, but we didn't make it before it got dark. So we got to this place called Hall Sands, and it wasn't until the morning that we discovered that actually Hall Sands was a village that had fallen into the sea in 1917, and this was really all that was left of it. It's a mystery to me. Corey, the song Seagulls was born out of this road trip that had this sort of mystical, spooky part to it. Mm-hmm. Why was that what you based the love song around? Um, well, the first part of that answer is I based it on what Karen told me. But I found in that story something about their relationship, which is that I saw Karen as the seagull. No matter how hard the wind was blowing, she kept flying, she kept struggling to fly, and it was Karen who was the force forward. But she couldn't get anywhere without the help of a navigator. I think Corey nailed it beautifully there. <laughs> uh, it really rings loud and clear and true to me. And just so I'm clear, are CJ and Karen, are you married or are you boyfriend, girlfriend? We are married. You are we married. We just passed our 10th anniversary. Oh. Yeah. Congratulations. So that trip happened, yeah, that trip happened probably like uh, 12 years ago. Corey, love songs are usually for couples like CJ and Karen who've been together for a long time or maybe have a new kind of spark of love. But on this CD, this release, you have love songs between sisters. And there's one and a father and a daughter. 
What are the challenges of writing love songs that aren't sort of about when the heart goes boom, 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 boom? I don't know that I would say that it's it's more challenging. For me, it's more interesting to write different kinds of love songs, to find different ways of looking at the same idea. We may both be broken, just a tiny bit imperfect, but each of us can detect what the other leaves unspoken. So I actively sought in these commissions that I took different definitions of what love is. How did you find your pairs? I started out by advertising this commission service on my website, and that's all I did. Sitting across from you and me is Carl and Kristen, who are from New York. Kristen, what were your hopes for the song when you commissioned it for Carl? Well, it was his. It was a big birthday for him, and I wanted something special for that birthday. What is the personal element of this song? Well, it talks a lot about the dynamic in our relationship, as well as talking about interests of Carl's, his hobby of playing poker, <laughs> um, the passions that are in our lives, because it's also talking about my work that I do as an artist. Well, let's listen to a little bit. The song is called Five of a Kind. I'm an unstoppable force, you know. But you're my source of affirmation, my anchor, my foundation. You've always had the strongest hands of any man at the poker table. And I love that you're able to read people so well. Kristen, were you ever, uh, I don't know if concerned is the right word, but did you ever think, wow, a whole lot of people are going to be led into an intimate part of our lives and the way I feel about my husband? I don't think I thought of it then, and, but it occurred to me after the song had been written. <laughs> you know, the, and, and I think it occurred to me, too, when Corey and I were sitting down and he was doing the interview, and I was suddenly realizing that the answers I were given would relate to something that a lot of people would know. CJ and Karen, I want to ask you the same question that I, I posed to Kristen. Now that the song is on a CD and so many people are going to hear it and know about this special time that the two of you had together, what do you think about that, Karen? I'd have to say I'm a bit of an exhibitionist anyway, so <laughs> I want everybody to hear about things that I do or think. On the other hand, the song has its special life of its own, and so it's not just about me and CJ and what Corey and I managed to agree on. I think it's fantastic if other people hear it, and I actually don't feel that it's so intimate that it can't be about anyone. Corey, were you in love when you made this record? <laughs> I've been in love with my boyfriend for eight years now. Other People's Love Songs is Corey Dargle's new CD. It's now out on New Amsterdam Records. CJ, Karen, Carl, and Kristen, thank you for sharing your love stories and for coming by our studios in New York and Chicago. And Corey, thanks a lot. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. Whether I should just invent a whole new 
to hear full songs from other people's love songs, visit our website at nprmusic.org. And one more election reminder before we go. Tune into NPR Tuesday night for our election special and hear results for your area on your local NPR member station. And while you're listening, keep your eyes on npr.org where you'll find up-to-the-minute results on all the key races, plus news, analysis, and live blogging. You'll also be able to quiz our political editor, Ken Rudin, and you can post your comments. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Allison Stewart. Scott Simon will be back next week. With the water.